So this past week, my wife and I celebrated our eighth wedding anniversary. Which isn't a whole lot I know, but it's kind of shocking to me. One, that my wife would be married to me for eight years. And two, it really doesn't feel like eight years has passed, at least for me. I imagine for Emily, it has felt like an eternity. But it's been great for me. Um, I'm always fascinated by how time seems to fly. I mean, I just had my 10th college reunion last year, and it did not feel like a decade since I'd been in college. I can still remember those days so clearly. But then I thought about everything I'd done since graduating. Got a master's degree, become a pastor, got married, had two kids, moved twice, and yeah, that's a decade's worth of stuff. And when I think about since getting married, Emily and I have moved twice and had two kids, it's like, yeah, we filled those years. I get it, but it still seems strange to me because I can remember planning for the wedding so vividly, and those memories don't seem eight years removed to me. When we were planning for our wedding, I was very involved at the onset. We had to find a venue that would hold 225 people because my side of the family is massive. And so I made a ton of calls to venues all over the area. I had a spreadsheet of places that I'd called, places that I still needed to call, and whether or not the ones I called would work for us, at basic pricing info. Then when they started sending information back to me, I created a binder to hold all of this information. I went and did site visits with Emily and her mom for three or four that seemed promising. When we decided upon a place, they gave us a list of recommended vendors. So I was there for the interviewing of photographers and DJs. I sat out the flowers. I said no to that. But I was there for the cake tastings, absolutely. We could have done a thousand cake tastings and it would have been fine with me. I missed a UNC ACC tournament game so we could pick out our, station, our invitations. That's how I invested I was. For a guy, I thought I did pretty well. I, but once we had the venue, had picked out the menu, had a photographer and a DJ and cake and flowers, had ordered the invitations and done the seating arrangements, I figured we were done and I stopped. What more was there to do? Apparently a lot. A lot of stuff that I didn't do. A lot of stuff that someone did have to do. It just wasn't going to be me. Today I want to explore this phenomenon. We seem to have, as human beings, we seem to either be big picture people or detail people. And while this could be an interesting thought experiment if we were to make this about group projects or job performance, what I'm really interested in is how this applies to our discipleship. But before we get to that, let's look at someone who could hold up a mirror to ourselves. We're going to look at one of the pillars of what it means to be faithful, someone who embodies what it is to sell out for God. Or does he? Let's take a look at Abraham in Genesis 12. The Lord had said to Abram, he's Abram at this point, he's Abraham later in the story. I'm going to use the two names interchangeably, just don't get confused said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the people on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. So he took his wife Sarai, who later becomes Sarah, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. 
Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At the time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he went on towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued towards the Negev. So Abraham or Abram, whichever you prefer, was hanging out living his life. That is until he hears the voice of God. God says, go, leave, move, leave everything you have, everything you know, and go to a place I'm going to show you. But here's the thing. We read this in a highly transient time, living in a highly transient area. And because of who we are and where we live, we don't see not only how scandalous this is, but also how dangerous. In the ancient world, there was no transience, or very little at least. There was little to no mobility. Your family was its own self-sufficient society. You had a job within the society of your family, and most of it was geared around protecting your collection of animals. What would you need protection from? Well, certainly wild animals and predators, but you also needed to protect your family and your herd from neighboring tribes and families. Because life in the ancient world wasn't ordered where you decided upon set boundaries for land and everyone abided by them. Frankly, that's not even the case now, but this was truly the Wild West. This was Age of Empires. Anyone remember that computer game? Where you'd be out hunting and foraging for supplies and you'd come upon someone in an enemy tribe and you knew, all right, it's on. We better gear up for battle. Well, that's what the ancient world was. In the ancient world, you were always under threat from the families that lived around you. So when Abram is called to leave his father's land, we aren't talking about a headhunter calling and saying, have you ever thought about the West Coast? No, instead, Abram is leaving everything he's ever known. He's leaving with some resources to start over, but it's not clear how self-sufficient he can be, him and his family can be, right from the start. He's leaving behind a measure of protection and security and God says, I'm going to show you what land will be your land. Here's the flaw in the plan. It's very likely that the land that God will show them will be someone else's land. And Abram and whatever band he can gather to go with him will have to fight to win that land. And will have to keep fighting in order to keep that land. Abram isn't just being asked to relocate. He's being asked to give his whole life fighting and scraping and grinding to build a little bit of something that his sons will have to give their lives fighting and scraping and grinding until they can get a smidge of legitimacy. But even still, even given all of this, Abram goes. He says yes. He leaves behind everything he has, everything he knows in order to follow the voice of God into the great unknown. This summer, series, this summer our series is about looking at two passages which are located right next to each other because I think there's a lot to be gleaned when we look at two passages side by side. And to me, this is one of the prime cases. Because this first story is about Abram going off, leaving everything behind to face an uncertain future that will certainly be exponentially more difficult than the life he is leading. But he does it anyway, because he is convinced God is calling him to it. He is convinced this is what God wants from his life. So he goes. And you know what he does right afterwards? Let's take a look. Continuing in Genesis 12. Now there was a famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. 
As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you're my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. So Abram leaves his father's land. His, he leaves his tribe. He leaves every idea about the life he's ever had, and he goes out in search of a future that is, on the one hand, God-ordained, and on the other hand, incredibly dangerous. He knew when he set out on his journey, it would involve risk. It would involve danger. He knew he wouldn't always be safe. He knew all of this before he took one step. And yet the first thing that happens is a famine drives him to Egypt. But before he can get there, he says to his wife, when we get there, men will want you. And not just the lax bros, like real powerful people will want you. Who will have me killed just so they can be with you? So let's like not let anyone know that we're together because I don't want to die. Say you're my sister. Okay, cool. Now think about this from Sarah's perspective. There are two outcomes in Abraham's logic. The first is they go into Egypt as husband and wife. Someone powerful wants her. So he has Abram killed in order to take Sarah as his wife or concubine. The second is they go with Abram's plan and they pretend they're brother and sister and a powerful person takes Sarah as his wife or concubine. The outcome here for Sarah is the same in both cases. The plan doesn't change the outcome for her. Abram's brilliant plan, it's all about protecting himself. It's all about keeping him safe. What a charmer. So Abraham and Sarah go into Egypt, and sure enough, the Egyptians notice Sarah's beauty. And she's taken to Pharaoh. And she's made one of his wives slash concubines. Pharaoh rewards Abraham. He gives him livestock, camels, servants. Abraham's living large. But this isn't right. So Pharaoh's household is stricken with disease. Pharaoh finds out what has happened and sends Abraham on his way. Up until now, I've been pretty hard on Abraham. But to be fair, he deserves it. But one might argue he acted shrewdly. He knew the road would be hard for him, so he did what he had to do in order to, one, survive, and two, gain some wealth and resources. I wouldn't want to make that argument because when someone counters with he pretended his wife was his sister to save his own hide, you lose. That argument wins. But still, here's where I really struggle with this story. Abraham had faith enough in God to blow up his whole life, to put not only his future, but the futures of the people who came with him and the future of his sons and his progeny into God's hands, but he didn't think God would get him through Egypt? Abraham assumes all the risk of leaving his father's land, his father's house, his tribe, to go and start a new tribe, which is something unheard of in the ancient world. He does this on faith, 
Other parts of scripture and tradition praise him for this act of faith, and yet he can't walk into Egypt with a pretty wife and think he'll be fine. The incongruity of it all confounds me. I can't square this circle. I can't make these two stories resolve. In fact, it's almost as if these two stories are written about two decidedly different characters, two entirely different people. And yet, in the incongruity of this story, I wrote that word a lot for a word that's really hard to say. As this story seems to be about two entirely different people, ironically enough, I think we see ourselves. Or at least, I think I see myself. I started this off talking about the difference between, between being about the big things or about being about the small things. I really messed up that sentence. Let me try it again. I started this all off talking about the difference between being about the big picture or the small details. Abraham was clearly about the big picture. Leave your family, leave your home, leave your future, go where I'm leading you, done, check, no problem. But when it came time to have faith in the small things, get through Egypt alive, he doesn't quite make the grade. God's got your back when it comes to making you a great nation, but not when it comes to you're not dying in Egypt because your wife is cute. But I see this dichotomy play out in my own life. I trust God to redeem the cosmos. I trust God to make all the things I find wrong with this world right. I trust God to bring about God's perfect kingdom in his own time, but I don't trust him with my finances. I trust God with my eternal salvation. I trust that God has worked out and won eternity for me, but I won't trust him when I feel the Holy Spirit nudge me to do something that might impact the next year of my life. How often are we willing to believe, to have faith in God for the big things? We trust God, the future of the universe, and our existence after death. That's pretty big stuff, am I right? Why is it easier to trust in those things, to have faith in those things, to leave those things to God, than it is to leave a much smaller matter to God's hands? I wonder if it's a matter of consequence. When Abram left his father's land, the future was generally unknown. He might have had an idea about what he was giving up, but it wasn't immediately pressing upon him. It was as hypothetical as the future into which he was walking. Sure, he might have known he'd make enemies in carrying out this plan, but for the moment, those enemies were faceless. Then he goes to Egypt, and there's a problem he can see. He can comprehend. He can see the faces of the men who would kill him. He can see, he can picture the consequences. The potential outcomes were things that were inside his frame of reference. Why can we give the big things to God while not trusting God with the small things? Because we can picture the small things. We can comprehend the small things. We can give big things to God because eternal salvation and the redemption of the cosmos are so outside our frame of reference that we can't imagine or comprehend them. I can't imagine what heaven will look like. I can imagine what giving 10% of my income would do to my bank account. We are more willing to surrender the fate of things we can't imagine than we are willing to surrender the fate of the things we can. There's a logic to it, but I think it's a backwards logic. And so I'd invite us today to consider what small things we might trust to God. What real thing can we give to God today? How can we begin to trust God with the small things in the same way we trust him with the big things? So this summer, we're doing something a little different to try and connect to each other and to God and dig deeper into scripture. We're calling it our summer extensions. 
This is in keeping with how we understand discipleship and understand our mission here at Spirit Life. Small groups are a huge part of what we do. But often over the summer, our regular small groups take a break because people are in and out of town and you just can't get a continuity together. But we still need, whether we're in a regular small group or not, to explore that dimension of our discipleship, to connect with God and with others in a way outside of a sermon. So we're going to take some time right now to dig deeper into this passage in a way that fits how God has made you. Over here, we're going to invite anyone who wants to talk about this in a small group style, group question talking thing, um, to gather some chairs and we have some questions for you. At this table here in the back, we have a group project if you want it to be still in, a, in community with people, but a little bit more tactile. In the this side in the back, we have journals for if, if you're a little bit more introverted and want to get your thoughts out in that way. And then over here, we're going to ask people who connect to scripture through prayer to circle their chairs and we have some prayer prompts for you. So we're going to do this for 10 minutes. We got a timer up on the screen to prove to you that this will not last forever. <laughs> this will end. Um, but um, we're going to engage, dig a little bit deeper into this story. Uh, quick note to the journalers. We'd love for our journals to become a community expression. Um, and so we'd love for you to write them anonymously and then leave them here. But if that's going to keep you from being authentic, you are welcome to take the journal with you um, and bring it back next week if you would. Um, but grace abounds if you forget. Um, so go forth and I'll call you back for communion in 10 minutes. <laughs>